The Climate Papers, the COP26 Universities Network podcast. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Climate Risk podcast, in which we discuss and explore what we mean by climate risk and what its impact is on public policy, on health, security and on decision making. My name is Amanda Carpenter and with my guest today we're discussing climate risk tipping points, those moments when a small change or changes become so significant they cause a much larger, often irreversible shift. Have we reached such a point with climate change? The most recent IPCC report appears to suggest that we are now on such an irrevocable path. To discuss climate change, climate risk and tipping points, I'm joined by my guests, Dr. Eric Mackey, a climate scientist, who with the Cambridge Zero team works across research areas from the University of Cambridge on interdisciplinary projects related to climate change and net zero solutions. Eric, thank you for being with us and welcome. Hi there, thanks for having me. My second guest, Dr. Luke Kemp, is a research associate at the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge. His work focuses on extreme climate change and societal collapse and how we can foresee and govern global risks and emerging technologies. Luke, welcome to the Climate Risk Podcast and thanks for being here. Good evening, Amanda. Thank you for having us. Oh, and yeah, by the way, Luke is very kindly dialing in from Australia. So it's fantastic that we've managed to steal some of his vacation time. So thank you for that. Eric, I did a rather kind of brief overview textbooky discussion of a tipping point, which I don't think was particularly accurate. Could you maybe kick us off by explaining what do we really mean by tipping points and specifically in relation to climate change? Sure. Yes. Thanks, Amanda. So um, when we talk about tipping points in a general sense, they are um, critical thresholds beyond which a system, which could be any system, really reorganizes often in an abrupt or um, irreversible way. And so when we apply that to the climate system, uh, we're talking about elements of the climate system or the earth system, which could pass such a critical threshold. And that would be a a tipping point. And such elements are referred to as tipping elements. So we we talk about tipping elements in the earth system that could pass a tipping point. And um, examples of such tipping elements, um, well, they can kind of be grouped into sort of three large sort of groupings um, related to like ice sheets. So loss of ice in, in that, that's one, you know, in Antarctica or Greenland or the Arctic. Um, circulation changes like circulation, ocean circulation changes or atmospheric circulation changes, or what we refer to as biome shifts, which could be um, related to, for example, the rainforests or uh, coral reef diebacks, for example. So but we have those tipping elements in the earth system associated with all those kinds of systems. and they could pass a tipping point, but there are lots of um, uncertainties associated with our understanding of when and if they might pass a tipping point, what the timescales are associated with those, and whether or not those things are actually irreversible as well. So some tipping points may be irreversible, but some may not be. And um, if we were to reduce uh, global warming again, for example, some of those might might return more easily than others to their pre-tipping point state, if that makes sense. The, the IPCC report, which came out very recently, I, I think led us to believe that we'd gone past the point of no return in some significant way for, for certain parts of the atmosphere and certain aspects of climate change. I mean, is, is that the case with some of those systems you've just outlined? I mean, I'm thinking perhaps of sea ice and, and sheet ice, and I know that your background is, is in this area and that you were at the you Antarctic survey. So, so have we gone past the point there where a tipping point has happened and 
is we're, we're now at that point of irrevocable change and there's nothing we can do or, or is there hope in terms of that area um so i mean yeah there's lots of uncertainties associated with all these systems as i said we should also make a there's a sort of clear distinction there between sea ice and the ice sheets which um, i think we should keep quite separate so the sea ice in the arctic is the frozen ocean surface frozen ocean water on on the surface of the arctic ocean and that has been going through a clear sort of system of a, of a positive feedback where we're seeing increased warming is leading to melt of the arctic sea ice which is resulting in more of the dark ocean surface becoming you know visible which is absorbing more heat from the sun and therefore resulting in more melt so that's a kind of system of a positive feedback where more warming leads to more melt of arctic sea ice but the um the the evidence actually shows that that is not necessarily an irreversible one so that one if we were to you know, if, if, if global temperatures were to go down again, that one would actually be, be reversible. On the other hand, if we're looking at the ice sheets, um, so the Greenland ice sheet and the Antarctic ice sheet, this is where we're referring to the ice that actually sits on land um, on, on, on the Antarctic continent or on, on Greenland. There, the, the system is, is they're, they're, they're quite different systems. And there, for example, there is evidence that shows, for example, in Antarctica, that there are points where the ice sheet will pass a point of no return in terms of self-sustaining retreat. So the, the ice sheet will keep retreating, which results in more ice ending up in the ocean, basically, uh, which results in more sea level rise, right? So, so with the Antarctic ice sheet, we don't really know yet for sure whether that point has definitely been passed, but there are certain glaciers on Antarctica where it looks like that point may have already been passed. And, and there's one glacier that often comes up in the news, it's called the Thwaites Glacier in West Antarctica, which you may have heard about. That one, people are quite concerned, or scientists are quite concerned that it has already passed that point of, of self-sustaining retreat, so which would lead to more sea level rise this century. With Greenland, just it's, Greenland is a slightly different picture. In Greenland, we have something called this melt elevation feedback, which is this, um, the idea there is that as temperatures increase, Greenland ice sheet is melting more, and therefore the ice is ending up at lower altitudes, which is where it's warmer, and therefore is resulting in more melting, etc. Um, which is causing more sea level rise as well. With Greenland, I think the current thinking or the, sort of the research suggests at the moment that there is a, a critical threshold beyond which that retreat and melting of the Greenland ice sheet, it will continue um, and will be irreversible. And we don't quite know exactly what level of warming that threshold is, but the sort of estimates at the moment suggest it's about 1.6 degrees of warming. So we haven't got there yet. We're currently at about 1.1, 1.2 degrees of global warming. But if we, do, if we go far beyond the 1.5 degree target set in the Paris Agreement, then we could pass that point of no return with Greenland. So I guess to summarize that bit, you know, each of these systems is quite different. And some of them, it looks like we might be passing that point already. Some of them, not so sure. But yeah, lots of uncertainties. And that concept of uncertainty is absolutely key, isn't it, when we talk about understanding climate risk? And, and I think that for many listeners of this podcast, there'll probably be a very aware and clear about what we mean by that but but could you just clarify when you're talking about uncertainty because i think it means something very specific in this context that it might not mean in other contexts the way i put it down here is that we can't objectively prescribe probabilities of different outcomes in short you can say there's large error intervals around the probabilistic distribution of a given event while deep uncertainty we're referring to when you don't know the probability attached to different outcomes, and you also don't know the exact chain of cause and effect that can lead to a given outcome. So the uncertainty is that 
we don't know what we don't know, really, isn't it? Effectively, <laughs> just to kind of paraphrase what you said there, Luke. And 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 I was really interested in in just in kind of you know the little mini introduction I gave to you. I mean, you're talking about societal collapse, which feels <laughs> you know quite kind of existential change level. I mean, tell us a little bit about the area of the research that you've been working on and how this dovetails and feeds into this conversation around tipping points and climate risk. Of course. So historically, we've had a large number of events in which essentially we have state failure, which is not just the temporary failure of the existing state, but it actually seems to be enduring and crosses over into changes into culture, population, and society more broadly. And these are often referred to as societal collapses. Often, as a shorthand, people refer to this as a, a large-scale loss of complexity. I don't really quite like that. I think complexity is a bit too fuzzy a term and it's a bit too normatively loaded. What I like to think of this as is essentially a collapse of power networks, so a loss of different existing power networks in society and a large-scale loss of capital. This is archaeologically, when we're measuring things, it's usually what we're referring to as kind of material culture and usually the build-up of capital in different societies. And sometimes this is correlated with either a large-scale redistribution of population and changes in population density and sometimes even large-scale loss of life. In a way, you could think about it as a social tipping point. Okay. And obviously, extremes of climate change and the changing nature of the environment in which people are living. So societies who might, communities might be right on the very edge of climate change impacts. So coastal societies, for example, or perhaps small island states, or even, even you know, it, 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 back home view in Australia, you know, people living in, in parts of Sydney who've been, who've been flooded out. I mean, those societies, once the situation around them, once the environment around them changes to such an extent that they are no longer to con- able to continue their lives as they have been, that presumably then creates a major shift. Is that so, so when you're saying that, that, you know, if you're flooded out and your community is now underwater, your home is underwater, you're going to move and that in turn is going to create a shift. Is that right? Is that kind of, I mean, the societal collapse there, but it'll also have a domino knock-on effect, presumably, to other societies because populations will have to move and relocate and will have mass migration and all of those sorts of issues. Indeed. And this is the most interesting thing when you try and look at historical case studies when it comes to climatic variation. It's important to remember that Historically, we haven't had anthropogenic climate change. What we've usually had is regional climatic variation. Um, so, for instance, the late Bronze Age was correlated with a change in climate, which I think was roughly one to two degrees cooler, which also is correlated with a large number of drought events in different areas. It's important, once again, to keep in mind, this is very different to what we're experiencing currently, which is global, it's far quicker, and it's far greater magnitude as well. But the interesting thing here is that historians, archaeologists, and anthropologists are slowly starting to uncover the, the richness of these case studies. And it's very rare that you have this really simple chain of cause and effect where you have a climatic variation, a drought, people get less food, and everything just goes haywire. It tends to be the number of different what you call risk cascades. And the risk cascade refers to where a climatic impact or trend triggers or amplifies a set of risks. And these can either cascade into one of them, like a domino effect, or sometimes they actually can cycle through and re-amplify the initial change. And so these can be both pretty unexpected and kind of weird. So for instance, in Mesopotamia, often debts were paid off and based in grain. And of course, if you had a drought which actually impacted your yield, suddenly this led to many more people going into debt servitude and hence an increase in slavery, which in turn often amplified pre-existing social tensions. And likewise, when it comes to the collapse of the Western Empire, people often think of this in a really simple way of 
decrease in crop yields meant kind of more tension within the society. But one of the bigger issues is actually that the climatic variation of what's called the Little Ice Age antiquity basically pushed the Gauls and Gauls and Visigoths, the barbarians as they called them, to the north, into the Roman territories. And they were in turn pushed by the, uh, the Huns who were um, coming in from the steppe. So it's actually a much more kind of interesting set of different causes and effects that tends to lead to large-scale risk. And this is how risks works in the real world. If you think about COVID-19, for instance, it was, of course, the mortality of the disease, but a bigger issue was the fact that it was going to overwhelm the healthcare system, which in turn we fear would have a large number of knock-on effects to society more broadly. So this is the way we really need to start thinking about risk if we're to actually have an honest, sober and realistic assessment of what kind of dangers climate change proposes to us. Thank you. And I'm not surprised that your work is around existential <laughs> existential crises because this is because the world that you've just described and absolutely fascinating that link back to our past, to our history. So we've got real clear evidence of what happens when things, the climate impacts on people's livelihoods. I mean, your grain example is fascinating. So, so what we've got here is a series of events that are all across the whole globe that are kind of coming together. You know, and they may be forming small cascades, and they may be forming big cascades. But, but that gives me the sense that this is an in, enormous. I mean, we knew it was enormous, but even more than ever before, I'm struck by what an enormous problem this is, what an enormous issue this mm-hmm. is. How can we ever help people to map a path through this? Because I know a lot of the work that you've been doing through this project is to understanding the impact of risk and helping individuals, whether they're decision makers or policymakers or public health specialists, understand what risk means in climate terms and then perhaps start to take actions to mitigate or manage that risk. So given what you've just said, Luke, that this is happening all over and Merritt's been describing you know, the physical changes the planet's undergoing, and then the societal impacts of that. How can we begin to pick our way through to understand and, and communicate around climate risk that doesn't just make people think, you know, this is a doomsday scenario. It's an existential crisis. I can't do anything. I'm just going to go back under the duvet. You know, I mean, where do we where do we start? So there's different methods you can take. One is, as mentioned, looking at historical case studies. The notion being that these can give us blueprints of how risk cascades can work in a society. Of course, the typical rebuttal here is that, ah, these societies were just fundamentally different to a modern industrialised society, and hence they can't be comparable. That's potentially true of some impacts, but it's not until we actually understand what the risk cascades were that we can start to think, would these be applicable or not? And if it comes to some basic political ones, say, for instance, amplifying or worsening inequality, that seems to be something that would apply to the modern world. So hence, if we understand the risk cascades, we can then start to think about would these be, can you craft these onto modern case studies or not? And of course, you can look, when we say historically, you can look not just at ancient history, but also at modern history as well. So we have different examples of scientists trying to look at how climate change has potentially interacted with or potentially amplified things like conflict, political change, um, even, for instance, in Syria, um, there's been some different studies of how the drought there may have been potentially worsened by climate change and that would have, may have fed into the civil war conflict over there. This is still an area of great uncertainty, as is kind of most areas of risk cascades at different points. One way to try to work with this uncertainty is to actually get large groups of experts together and essentially do what you can think of as wisdom of the crowds amongst experts. You basically get experts together, have them share information, and then collectively make judgments about 
how likely different events are and what's the chain of cause and effect leading to that event. You can actually even get them to actually map this out in a visual manner. And the idea is that you may not have exact probabilities of how likely a different risk cascade is. So for instance, the likelihood of a particular kind of conflict occurring, but at the very least you understand what's the pathway that could get us there. And if you know that pathway, you can start to pick out leverage points for policy, for resilience activities, et cetera. Actually, it might be good to chuck a question to Eric here because there's a really interesting overlap here where when we talk about risk cascades, we're often starting to draw from complexity science and talk about ideas of hysteresis, autocorrelation, early warning signals, et cetera. And so, Eric, it might be good for you to actually quickly cover off these notions of early warning signals when it comes to tipping points. Yes, um, and it's really good to, good to bring that up. And I was just thinking along the same lines. So, I mean, as Luke is saying, so there's this notion in tipping points that when you pass a tipping point that you, the, the system in the, in the mathematical terms passes a bifurcation. So it changes date and, and beyond you, that bifurcation point, it becomes really hard to return to the, the point that it, the, the state that the system was in before. And this is also um, referred to as, as hysteresis behavior of a system. So, and hysteresis also refers to the dependency of the state of a system on its history. So, and whether the system is able to return to the state it was in before the bifurcation point or not. Um, so, and you know that applies to many mathematical systems, but it can also apply to the Earth system and the, the physical climate system as we study the physical climate system. And people are actually using this this mathematical underpinning of the physical climate system to, to to start thinking about can we see those bifurcation points happening in the data? So can we and can we can we predict that they are about to happen? And can we use that as an early warning signal that a tipping point may be about to occur? So it's actually possible if you look at certain data sets, like for example, um, you know, well temperature data sets or um, ocean circulation. Um, strength or you know certain physical variables within the physical climate system you can see changes that are occurring as you get to those those critical points those critical changes of state and um, in particular you can see what we you see changes in what we um or increases in what we call the auto correlation and the variance which are mathematical quantities within those those variables and so um the argument is that if we can see those things occurring in the data then that might tell us, okay, a tipping point is about to occur. And some, some studies have actually been looking at that in recent data sets for, for example, the Atlantic Meridional Earth Returning Circulation, which is this big system of ocean currents in the Atlantic Ocean that basically keeps our climate in Western Europe, um, you know, nice and, well, relatively warm for the latitude that we're at. And, and does, I mean, it's, it, it distributes heat around the whole Atlantic Ocean. So it's a really important part of the Earth system. And um, we can actually see in the data that that um, if we look at the, the, the strengths of that circulation, we can see that it has been slowing down in recent decades and it's currently actually reached its weakest point in about a millennium. And so scientists are arguing that this is a potentially an early warning signal that the AMOC or Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation may be about to pass a tipping point. And if that were to occur, that would have, you know, massive um, follow-on consequences for the climate in Western Europe, but it would also, for example, it could trigger a, a cascade of other tipping points around the around the world. For example, the AMOC also regulates precipitation in the Amazon uh, basin, so it could have an impact on the Amazon rainforest, could potentially trigger a tipping point there. So that also, there is also this interconnectedness between um, different tipping points uh, uh, around the world that we can, we can look at that way. Some people are referring to this as a tipping cascade, and 
Interestingly, I think you can then take it a step further where it becomes not just a tipping cascade in the climate system, but also in the interconnected human systems as well, where we're much more likely to see tipping points in social systems if the ecological change is abrupt and of a much larger scale than we're used to. One very nice piece of imagery that complexity scientists often use is this notion of a ball in a basin where essentially you can think of like this valley between two mountains and a ball rocking up and down between it. And essentially, as the system becomes more unstable, the ball starts to gather more and more energy. It gets close to kind of flipping out of the basin, but eventually it does. Um, and of course, the basin itself can become more and more shallow, which makes it more likely the basin will eventually, that the uh, ball will eventually flip out. You can think of this as the system becoming more fragile, becoming more vulnerable at the time. And there are some people, myself included actually, who think that this, while usually applied to ecological systems, can also be applied to social systems as well. So a few different people I'm working with, like the archaeologist Tim Kohler and the complexity scientist Martin Sheffer, have actually tried to apply these ideas to looking at the what are called Puebloan societies in pre-Hispanic uh, southwestern United States. And essentially, they tried to look at a number of different archaeological proxies to see if was there a critical slowing down before the collapse of these societies. And, Mathematically, they found that there was. That they seem to be recovering more slowly from perturbations over time prior to their collapse. So there is some small emerging evidence that the dynamics we see in ecological and kind of physical systems also manifest in social systems as well. So coming at this from a kind of lay perspective, we've got um, an incredibly complex interconnected system. We've got series of tipping points that we either identify in their own right that are, that are important and significant, or that they can cascade and have impacts on other tipping points. I mean, the two I know, two really obvious questions, I suppose, is, 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 is what do we do about this? But, but perhaps before we answer that question, how do you unpack this in a way that those people who are responsible for making significant decisions about how we live our lives, so particularly politicians or perhaps health planners or economists, how do we unpack this in a way that actually makes them take notice because we've been having warnings of you know the extreme impacts of climate change for, for for decades now we've had a number of ipcc reports you know how do we actually unpack it and say look you can no longer ignore this or, or do you feel that that message is getting across to those individuals i mean i guess that's the the crux question isn't it but i mean i guess in my mind there are sort of two elements to that there's one there's that well it sort of splits into the mitigation side and the adaptation side in my mind so in the mitigation side yes the the clear message is that the more greenhouse gases we admit the more co2 there is in the atmosphere the more warming is going to increase the higher the risk of these kind of tipping points occurring becomes right and that is the, the i mean i guess that's that is the crux of the message and the how do we get that message across more clearly? That's what's really hard. I think the message is getting out there. I feel like, especially in the last few years, the general uh, discussion around the topic has definitely increased. There's a lot more buy-in from, from the community, from activists, and people are really getting that, hammering that message home. And at the COP26 summit in November, we did see some progress on some of these points. But obviously, until we see this actual reduction in greenhouse gas emissions that's the only thing that's going to really make that change and so i think we just need to keep keep you know getting the message out there about those things and i think what we can do from the point of view of tipping points is try and improve our understanding of these systems and improve how we or reduce the uncertainties associated with them and make it um clearer at what thresholds certain tipping points might occur so it becomes even easier to to to, to understand in, in that sense 
Then the other side I said was the adaptation side. So I think, you know, we do need to really accept the fact that some of these impacts are going to occur and are going to happen and we need to be prepared for them. And so there is an adaptation question there as well. And we need to make it clearer to the people who are um, policymakers and decision makers and people who are actually out there building defenses to sea level rise, for example, they need to have a better understanding of, of what is coming. And so I think we that also requires a reduction of the uncertainty, for example, around sea level rise so that we can make clear decisions on, okay, you know, we know this is how much sea level rise we can expect, or this is the range we can expect over the next century. This is what we need to be prepared for. And so, you know, it is really important that we get a clear picture of that and provide that information. For me, when we're thinking about risk cascades and change points, this is part of trying to improve risk assessment in a way that we can think through just how bad could this get. And by understanding our systems of inquiry would be the physical climate system or social systems, we can much more easily unpack just how bad could things get and also how would you actually get that bad in the first place. There's, when it comes to climate communication, some lessons which seem to be robust about communication, whether you're talking about mitigation, adaptation, best case, worst case, etc. And these are really basic things. Choose the right danger, avoiding ideological bundling, and choosing the right kind of frame. So if you're talking to a conservative politician or audience, in general, you're not going to want to reference Al Gore or talk about taxation, for instance. It's automatically going to be bundling ideology in such a way and using representative that is going to put them offside. So those kind of basic social psychology messaging, um, messaging lessons are applicable to what we're talking about here. But I think there's also some things which are much more unique to talking about giving points, risk cascades, one is that we're often, as mentioned, talking about much more kind of worst case type scenarios. And there's a bit of conventional wisdom that when we talk about these much more confronting impacts, that people are automatically going to switch off. The meta analyses we have of hopeful versus doomist messaging are mixed. And it seems to hinge much more upon having a combination of the two rather than actually picking, you know, an optimistic versus a pessimistic framing. I do think there's good reasons to believe that thinking about the worst case not only allows us, as Eric kind of alluded to, to have better ideas of building resilience and adaptation forewarned as forearmed, but it actually could also act as a good motivator as well. If you look at, for instance, nuclear weapons, the idea of nuclear winter was one that really galvanised the public consciousness, and that came out in 1983 with a very pivotal article by Carl Sagan. And it was by having that kind of smoking gun that very clear mechanism by which nuclear weapons resulted in global severe impacts that people really took notice. And I think potentially if you get a much more developed understanding of how risk cascades work and potentially how systems of ecological human flip, and you start to really explore what are the worst case scenarios in climate change and have a good scientific basis for that, I think it could be something that really galvanises, electrifies public concern potentially. I'm suffering a bit of cognitive distance here because actually I think, well, I think you're right and I think the nuclear analogy is really interesting. I wonder if sometimes that that really big risk, you know, those, those kind of high risk, low probability events that are actually going to have such a significant impact on us are almost too much for us to comprehend. Rather like, you know, the nuclear winter was very clear and maybe it's the local stuff that galvanizes action. So it's the local flooding, it's the local crop loss, it's the local rise in temperature, you know, it's the very localized storms. I wonder if actually, oddly enough, the really big picture is too much for people to comprehend and they have to have the small picture and the direct immediate impact to take action. And that could be, I suppose, because we've 
we've already done doomsday scenario with the nuclear winter and it didn't happen. So people kind of, perhaps people think, well, it, we don't need to think about that because it, it didn't happen. I don't know. Do you, th- do you think there's an argument to say that it actually local effects might make more impacts on people, Eric, in terms of understanding and changing behaviours? I think definitely, yes. And I think there is actually a big push to provide better regional um, climate impact assessments now and local climate impact assessments at local scales so that people have more of an understanding of what the risks are within their own region and local community, but also so that the people, um, you know, local governments and people in, in, in charge in, can make more informed decisions about their locality and really, you know, understand what, what they're up against within their own region rather than just on the global scale. Like, you know, if you talk about sea level rise on the global scale, saying, oh, we're going to see 30 centimetres of sea level rise globally, that doesn't really mean anything for, for us here in, in the east of England, for example, but we can do local regional sea level projections for specific areas or specific bits of coastline. That makes it much easier to understand what you're up against there and what you need to do to protect against it, right? So, so there is a big push to do that. And, and the IPCC has done a lot of that work actually in, um, in the last, um, well, the IPCC report, the first one that came out with the, 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 the physical climate science one that came out in August. There was a whole section on regional climate impacts. And, and I mean, for example, here in Cambridge, we're working with um, a local emergency group that has people from the local environment agency and um, the local emergency response teams and so on, who are really interested in understanding what climate risk means for them here locally within Cambridgeshire and how can we provide help provide the data, you know, for example, on flooding, which is a big concern here and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. How can we provide accurate regional data that helps them prepare for what is to come in in, in our region. Uh, So I think that is, there is a big push to that. And that's really important because just talking about massive global scale tipping points isn't necessarily going to really drive the message home to people um, at home. Mm. I I think we need both, don't we, Luke? I mean, we actually need both. We need that, we need that global perspective because we do need to understand just how acute this crisis is. And we do need the kind of insight that your research area brings to this but we also then need to translate it to direct local impacts. So people, because people are essentially quite, you know, generally quite focused on their smaller air local area and, and, and need to have something to motivate their immediate behaviour. So we need we need you both. We need both areas of these research, don't we? Precisely. These things are mutually exclusive. It's exactly the same as talking about risk cascades. It doesn't mean you can also talk about how there are so many co-benefits to mitigation and that while avoiding climate change, you're also reducing air pollution, which leads to roughly 10 to 12 million lives lost annually per year. Um, so there's very easy ways to combine with messaging. And likewise, when you're thinking about both the local, it's important to think about that because we know that humans have what's called salience bias. We respond much more acutely to risks that are imminent immediate. And so if we can act upon that salience bias and you know, draw attention to local impacts that we know of, that's useful. But if we also then try to think through how this could scale up and contribute to regional or even global problems, I think that's also, for particular people, including policymakers, very useful. And I think once you start to talk to people who need to think about the global, whether it's negotiators in the UNFCCC, the United Nations International Climate Change, or policymakers who are involved with multilateral climate risk assessment, that's when you really need to start thinking about, you know, how could these big global problems manifest? And... Thinking about risk cascades is particularly important in this context because already we're starting to see discussions around emergency options, whether it's things like solar radiation management, so trying to do different interventions into the Earth system to basically offset the impacts of climate change. And if you're going to be taking actions like that, you're just 
really be aware of what's the risk profile of climate change and what's the risk profile of these other interventions. And all this requires that knowledge of tipping points, risk cascades. It requires a much deeper understanding of how social and ecological systems transform. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you both so much. I mean, I think we could talk about this all day. I just sort of from a kind of outsider's perspective, I just say I'm very glad you're there and you're doing the work you're doing because this is really informing um, decision making and, and we certainly need that and we need to continue. So, so huge thanks for sharing your research and your thoughts with us today and please keep going. <laughs> so uh, thank you, Luke and Eric, for being with us. Thanks to Cambridge Zero and COP26 Universities Network for supporting this podcast. You can catch other episodes on the COP26 Universities Network webpage or subscribe using your usual subscriber. So a huge thank you to my guests, to, to Luke and to Eric, and Luke particularly for dialing in from the late at night from Australia. And, and sorry about we had some sound issues there. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for having us, Linda. Great to talk to you both. And thanks to our listeners and goodbye. The Climate Papers is brought to you by Planet Pod Productions and sponsored by the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. Thank you.